Alrighty, hello again, everyone, and welcome to it. It is the Daring Hunter podcast for the uh, fourteenth of March, twenty twenty-three. Happy, I almost said twenty twenty-two, but I don't know. I saw the clock. It is a Tuesday. I appreciate you listening, downloading, sharing, telling a friend. Thank you, spreading the word. Please do that. You are the best advertisement we have and by that i mean the only advertisement we we have but if we were advertising and by we i mean me then you'd still be the best because word of mouth is the best and you guys rock anyway uh don't forget the book contest this week autographed books by ivanka trump versus governor christy gnome your choice all you got to do is become a supporter of the program to enter to win it's just that Easy at patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or Derek Hunter locals.com. Check it out. Pictures up there of the uh, books and the autographs and all that good stuff. Appreciate really do the support, especially now. All right. The, let's uh, let's get on with the program, shall we? Lots of stuff going on. I watched the Oscars last night. I just I'll I'll talk about the Oscars later on. I used to care. I really did, which makes me not care. It bothers me that I don't care. It doesn't, I'm not, like, upset over it. But what Hollywood has become, as a kid, man, there was nothing like movies. Now there's ugh, there's nothing like movies. Ugh. So we'll get into that. It was just a, a damn joke. I'm still sort of reeling from the uh, time change. We need to make sure that this is the last time the time changes i don't know the daylight savings time begins now okay daylight savings times begin i don't know what time it actually is time is measured it's a unit of measure it's arbitrary we decide what humans decided a long time ago when time started and the the way we measure it and so we can change it whatever we want i like it it is now because i like when it stays light later Seven fifteen sunset is better than six fifteen sunset although it screws up the clock and the kids they're up till like midnight last night and trying to get them to go to bed but um, i cannot sleep in days when i have to get up early i'm a creature of habit beyond anything and so i tossed and turned till about 3 30 last night so if i sound out of it it's sleep deprivation but that doesn't mean that I am out of it. The brain is functioning, and I want to talk about the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the reaction to it. I, I am not often the voice of sanity, really, honestly. I am the voice of reason, but not the voice of sanity. Where every, I'm not somebody, if you want to panic, you want to freak out, I don't care. Calm down is my mantra here. And more importantly, what I want to say about Silicon Valley Bank is just hold on. Because what you're seeing now is two political responses. Uh, One from Democrats, one from Republicans. And each is to their own advantage. And maybe one of them has to do with being responsible making the right decision. But there's a high probability that neither one of them does. 
I am not an investment banker. I am not a banker. I am not entirely sure what the failure of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank mean for the economy. But there are people out there telling you, buy gold. You better buy gold right now. People I respect, I'm not going to name them, but people I respect saying, oh, now's the time. Get in, get in, get in, get in. Gold isn't cheap. Gold, you know, you should diversify your portfolio and everything of that nature. But usually, if somebody's telling you to buy something, they'll have a link. Use this link to buy what you need. And you go, hmm, that's awfully convenient and nice. It's super. It's not out of niceness. They do it because they get their beak wet. The uh, Amazon affiliates program is real. You see a website, particularly a news website, that writes up, say, books or does reviews of products or whatever, and they have a little link in there. You can find out more about this or buy this or whatever, and uh, you, you click on that link. They get their beak wet a little bit. Not if you don't buy anything, but if you do buy it by clicking that link, you get a taste. It's a small taste, but if you have, if you do the Washington Post, or which is a little weird example since it's owned by Jeff Bezos. But if you're the New York Times, if you are the Baltimore Sun, and then here's a link, they usually have a little note somewhere down at the bottom in fine print that you need a jeweler's loop to read that says uh, affiliate program, we get a little taste of the action if you buy something. There's nothing inherently wrong in that. It's the real moral hazard the real moral dilemma isn't that we're reviewing a book and uh you know if here's a link to buy the book because you know if you're going to write a review of a book you should provide people with a way to purchase the book the real problem comes in with the question are you reviewing the books so you can have the link to get your beak wet you know would you have reviewed if you didn't get your beak wet if you didn't get a taste of the action would you still be reviewing the book? Would you still be doing book reviews at all? And that's the sort of thing we have here with these people telling you, buy this, put your money here, do the other thing. Is Do they really believe it? I don't know. I assume these people are people of integrity, but the fact that they have the ability or a sponsor or something to uh, make a little bit of money off of it in the process strikes me as odd. So I would just caution anybody, do what you want to do with your investments. It's your investments. But don't take anybody's word for it just because it's their word. Listen to them, check them out, and then check out the other side. Because, you know, you could buy all the gold in the world. doesn't mean that gold is going to do nothing but go up. And like I said, I looked it up last night. I don't know what it is right now, but gold was like, almost $1,900 an ounce. It was up something like $64 an ounce, which $64, nothing to sniff at. You'd definitely bend over and pick that up if it was laying on the sidewalk. But when you're looking at spending almost two grand on something, $64 in return on that investment is, well, roughly the interest rate you'd get in a bank. And your deposits in banks are insured. You can think what you will of the FDIC and the concept of the FDIC, but, you know, it's there. It's a safety net. 
So before anybody panics and before anybody panic buys, I would recommend that people calm down a little bit. The same goes, look, if you just have to look recently. Remember, the you, you listen to anything. And, and it's just true. I'm not, look, these things are fine products. And I indulge in some of them. I have some of that emergency food, right? I've bought some of that dehydrated, sits in a bin in your basement in case the zombie apocalypse apocalypse comes food. I have some of it. Not a ton, but I have some. Because why not? You know, it's it's always good to have some preparedness. I don't have, you know, a basement full of it. And we're going absolutely crazy and we're, we're you know, going to survive the zombie apocalypse indefinitely inside Fortress de Hunter. No, that's not the case. But there are people out there who are selling this and they're not selling it because they care deeply about you. They're selling it because they're being paid to do it, telling you, you need to stock up. You need to buy more. You need to buy more. And every other week they're doing, I buy more and 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 more. And you're like, well, at some point, you're going to have to eat this dehydrated food, right? I mean, if you're spending thousands of dollars because the stuff ain't cheap on dehydrated food, you, uh, you're going to have to do something with it unless you're lying. Then there was another panic not that long ago. And I was concerned about this. I think I might have even talked about it on the show. The diesel fuel shortage remember that that i think might have been around the time when i bought the emergency food i think i got like a cup i just got three bins or four bins of it it's not i got the smallest package they had i think it was like 300 bucks but um the diesel fuel shortage remember that when gas prices were exceedingly high diesel fuel shortage diesel fuel was going to lead to the collapse of the supply chain And it never came to pass, thank God. But by the people telling you there's a diesel fuel shortage, there's never an acknowledgement of bullet dodged or I don't have to say you were wrong. You could always just come out and say, we dodged that bullet. You're lucky. Uh, You're lucky, America. You're welcome, America. But they didn't. So there were a lot of people, I don't know what contingencies you make in case of a a diesel fuel shortage maybe you like me you bought some some dehydrated food maybe you buried a giant tub in your backyard and and bought a thousand gallons of diesel fuel i don't know what it was but a lot of people heard that and were concerned and said all right i'm going to make some adjustments to my life there's no accountability for it so as you hear people the hyperbole the panic involved in this bank, these bank failures. Does that mean the banking system is fine? No. Does it mean the banking system is about to collapse? No. I don't know what it means for the banking system, but I know that anybody trying to sell you something isn't really concerned about what it means for the banking system. There will be no follow-up, no mea culpa, no, okay, well, phew, we dodged that bullet. Here's everybody's money back that's not how these companies exist that's not how these people exist so i would be wary about this that being said it's certainly not a good sign when you have the second largest bank collapse in the nation's history and then you have another bank collapse especially a bank 
out in uh, Silicon Valley that is involved with a whole bunch of venture capitalists that help fund the tech sector. It's also not a good thing when you have the government running in and trying to prop up these banks artificially. It's a moral hazard. The problems and the reasons for these banks collapsing are unique to them, probably, but they are also repeating, being repeated. They, let's just say that Silicon Valley Bank spent an awful lot of time and burned an awful lot of calories being interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Probably more money than they spent on being interested in banking. And that's kind of a problem. If that's your priority, you're not a bank. You're a social activist organization. You're a social justice warrior funding machine. And that's fine. If that's what you want to be, just be honest with your customers and get out of the FDIC. They never do that. The FDIC, the Federal Depo- Federal Government's uh, F- Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that insures individual deposits and in bank accounts of up to $250,000. It provides a safety net for banks like Silicon Valley Bank to be wildly irresponsible in a way. And it provides a safety net for most customers not to care if their bank is irresponsible in a way. If you put, you know, $10 million into a savings account, you you would have been screwed, to be honest with you. But not really. Why? Well, Wall Street Journal today, the editorial board. The Treasury and Federal Reserve stepped in late Sunday to contain the financial damage from Friday's closure of Silicon Valley Bank, guaranteeing even uninsured deposits and offering loans to other banks so they don't have to take losses on their fixed income assets. See, government stepping in. The government, the FDIC, is supposed to do one particular thing. The federal government is supposed to do one particular thing. Insure deposits up to $250,000. But they're coming in now and saying, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to take care of everybody. Well, who falls outside of that $250,000? Do you have more than $250,000 in your your savings account? You probably don't. Or $250,000 in your checking account? You probably don't. Who has that money? Who has more than that? Well, it's rich people. Rich people. The Democrat donor class out in California have more money than that. So the federal government is stepping in and letting their friends know, don't worry, we got you. We got you, pal. Don't worry. Ruby, who listens all the time, emails, and she said things as uh, Mark Cuban reportedly has between 8 and $10 million at Silicon Valley Bank, according to thestreet.com. If that's true, he's now taken care of. He would have been screwed if it was all in one account. Although I can't imagine that Mark Cuban is dumb enough with his money to throw a whole bunch of money into one account. You put it in separate accounts. So you have the FDIC backing you up. But if it's not true, look, he's a billionaire. He's got multi-billion dollars. Why should taxpayers bail him out if he knew the rules going in 
He took the risk going in, as minimal as it probably was or felt like when he put that money in there. Why should we pick up the pieces for him when his pieces are, you know, already taken care of? Well, because this is how our government works. It's a moral hazard. What other, If Silicon Valley Bank fails and people are hurt, particularly the rich left-wing multi-millionaire billionaire class out in Silicon Valley, what happens? People then, other banks go, we need to get our house in order. The government didn't swoop in. The government didn't come in and take care of everybody. The government didn't prop up SVB. We need to make sure we don't collapse because we can't count on the government coming in and saving us. Instead, it seems as though they can't. Wall Street Journal again. This is a de facto bailout of the banking system, even as regulators and Biden officials have been telling us the economy is great and there was nothing to worry about. The unpleasant truth, which Washington will never admit, is that SVB's failure is the bill coming due for years of monetary and regulatory mistakes. Wall Street and Silicon Valley were in full panic mode over the weekend, demanding that the Treasury and the Fed intervene to save the day. It's revealing to see who can keep a cool head in a crisis, and it wasn't billionaire hedge fund operator Bill Ackman or venture investor David Sachs, both frantic panic spreaders. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation closed SVB, and the cleanest solution would be for the agency to find a private buyer for the bank. This has been the first resort in most previous financial panics, and the FDIC was holding an auction that closed Sunday afternoon. But Rohit Chopra, the Elizabeth Warren acolyte on the FDIC board, is hostile to bank mergers on ideological grounds, and the purchase terms could be too onerous for some potential buyers. The biggest banks are now the safest, and deposits are flooding into them. J.P. Morgan can park that money at the Federal Reserve and earn interest on its reserves. Why take on a new political headache? That big part right there is the key, the big banks. These are mid-sized banks we're dealing with. The big banks are now the safest. The big banks are where people are taking their money to. The big banks are funding the Democratic Party. Tell me again about Republicans being the party of the rich guy? No. The big banks, Wall Street banks, are reaping the rewards and funding the Democratic Party. Don't worry, the Democrats are looking out for you, though, right? At least that's what they tell you. Don't buy it. Let me just state it unequivocally. I am not somebody who is well-versed in the rules of banking or how to make a lot of... If I were able to make a whole bunch of money, if I knew what I was... I'd have a bunch of money. I don't. So take that for what it's worth. Take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I'm just... I'm not giving you advice on what to do. I don't want to give you advice on what to do. I want you to take every bit of advice that you get with a grain of salt because... Most of it is by people who have about as much experience and knowledge on the subject as I do, but they don't tell you they don't have any experience or knowledge. You'd be surprised how many people in radio, the blowhards in radio, the blowhards on TV, the blowhards in podcasting, the people who write columns. There is this amazing phenomenon that all you have to do is say something with enough conviction, say with enough confidence 
that people believe you. And you do it through various mediums. People always on television. There's no way this news network would put them on if they didn't know what they were talking about. I promise you. I promise you they would. They will. And they do all the damn time. Most of the people, particularly in prime time, have no knowledge beyond reading an Associated Press story about an hour before they went on air when they just found out the topic they'd be discussing on air. None of them have any knowledge at all on the subject. They got opinions up the wazoo. But if you're looking for opinions, then fine. If you're looking for, you shouldn't, I mean, I guess you can. You can base your opinion, your decisions on whatever you want. But if you're going to base them on strictly opinions rather than on knowledge, good luck. You might fall bass backwards into a victory. You might also fall bass backwards into a pile of manure. It's up to you. It's your life, your money. You do with it what you will. But I would just warn you against taking the word of these people on television. Look into their backgrounds. I promise you, if they are a uh, radio or podcast host or both, they don't know what they're talking. They're not financial experts. But they won't tell you. They won't go, you know what? I don't know what's going on here. I'm unsure what's going on here. They'll read the Wall Street Journal and they'll go, all right, well, I'll sell what the Wall Street Journal wrote on the editorial board and I'll sell it as though it's my opinion. I could have come on. I could have read. I could have you know, studied this editorial beforehand and then said see you know uh svb executives make mistakes and they'll pay for them but they were encouraged by easy money and misguided regulations as the fed flooded the world with dollar liquidity money flowed into venture startups that were svp's customer base the bank's deposits soared far beyond what it could safely lend they took in too much money and they were reckless with that money. I could have come in and said, there's, there's no way anybody would know this. But they'll pretend they do. And then they'll offer various solutions, quote unquote. It's really easy to it. Because then you've got the fallback plan of, eh, well, I'm not an expert. I was just spitballing. I was offering up potential. I was offering up various possibilities. Whatever, you cover your own butt. If things go south, it is the buy dehydrated food and bury yourself in the basement. Y2K is coming. And then uh, January 1st, 2000 happens and you go, oh, hey, all right. Well, there you go. We survived. And you just kind of move on. It's best not to follow these people in the first place. Take them under advisement, look into what they say, and then make your own decisions. But the doomsday cultures are usually selling something because nobody really, it, it's selling something and saying, look, this is a good product. It's so passe. It truly is. It's so passe. It works. Word of mouth is the best advertisement in the world, but. If you really want to get a run on something, and that's all it is, everybody's about short-term gains and surges and growth and whatever, they'll tell you, look, the sky is falling, but I can sell you the sky is falling insurance. You can see how the doomsday cult works. 
It's a, it's on. It's not just in banking, and it's not just on cable news. It's not just in radio. It's in the cult of climate as well. Back in do uh, what do you say here? Trying to figure out what year this was. Greta Thunberg five years ago. Good old Greta. She's purging her. Dad, leftists love a good purge, don't they? She's purging her Twitter account. Why? Well, because she, people are pointing out some very, what's a, inconvenient truths? Isn't that what Al Gore liked to say? Inconvenient truth? Back five years ago, on June 21st, 2018, little Greta Thunberg, little Greta Thunberg learns herself, quoted, tweeted out an article from Grit Post, which is a left-wing outlet, a top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. What, wait a second. What was that date again? 2018? Now, if you just do the math on that, it's been five years. Well, I guess technically they have until June 21st. So maybe we shouldn't spike the football in the five-yard line. Actually, this is like on the quarter-yard line just yet. But it's worth noting that this is just one of many such proclamations of doom and gloom in a very short time frame that uh, time passes and there's no accountability for it. Greta deleted the tweet. People were calling her out on it over the weekend saying, hey, what happened to this tweet? Look, Greta doesn't need to answer. She doesn't need to respond. Why? Because the people who could hold Greta responsible, the people who could force Greta to at least acknowledge and go, all right, I deleted it. It was wrong. It was a little bit of hyperbole. Those people are all on board. Those people gleefully reported the same BS. So why would they call out their queen? Why would they call out their little goddess? Why would they point out her shortcomings and her failings and her falsehoods and her hyperbole? Why would they? Do? They wouldn't. So she gets away with it. It just goes away. But it happens all the time. It happens all the time. For the past 40 years, there have been 10-year predictions of doom and gloom, and they didn't come to pass. And banking is a little bit different than science. Economics is better understood than the climate, but that doesn't change the concept. And we aren't talking about people who know what they're talking about here. We're talking about people who decidedly do not know what they're talking about. We're talking about people here with a vested interest that is uh, involved in this scenario. I don't know that it's wrong. I don't know that it's... Look, the people are going to tell you to buy gold. Maybe you should buy gold. I'm not saying don't. I'm saying to Greta that the world isn't coming to an end by June 21st. But I would tell you that... Um, it's a little bit less of a, a sense of urgency, maybe. Don't do anything. This is You always hear this all the time when the stock market crashed in 1929. October 29th, 1999, Black Monday, I think it was. I don't, don't quote me on that. I, wasn't, I was off that weekend. But uh, it was a panic. It was panic selling. It was, oh, my God, they're selling. The market's collapsing. I've got to sell. Smart 
investors don't panic. Now, there's a certain point at which enough people panicking will take down the whole ship. But most of the time, a panic is temporary and localized and will then result in a stabilization and then a rebound. Smart investors know where to put their money at times when everybody else is panicking and it is not taking it out of the market and putting it under their mattress or putting it in precious metals. Now, maybe, like I say, this could be different. I don't know. But I will point out that a lot of people, not most, certainly not anywhere near a majority, but a lot of people did make a fortune in the collapse of 1929. Why? Because there were certainly a lot of bad stocks and a lot of stocks and companies that were overvalued and overhyped and industries that collapsed and disappeared and businesses that collapsed and disappeared. But there were others that were quite solid investments that were very excellent companies that were long-term investments that just got swept up in the panic. Everybody's IBM. I think IBM was around. Then IBM. Good company, still around today. IBM was not that impacted. So, oh my God, all these other companies, sell everything, sell everything. Well, you're selling the bad stock and you're selling the good stock. Selling in a panic caused every stock to go down. So if you were a smart investor who didn't panic, you sat there and you said, well, IBM is way undervalued now. And I'm just using IBM as an example. I don't know that it's true, so don't take my word for it. Like I said, I was off that weekend in 1929. But IBM went down. All the good stocks went down along with the bad stocks. And the smart investor said, well, okay, the Ford Motor Company, I don't know if Ford was private or public at the time, but Ford Motor Company, IBM, they, uh, they're a solid company. They're not going anywhere, unlike fly-by-night industries, which is going under. So while you know the Ford Motor Company stock is devalued by like 50%, I'm going to throw a bunch of money into that. It's a buying opportunity. Because people were so panicked. Plus, back then, people were selling on the margins. People were shorting stock. And when the thing collapsed, they needed liquidity. A lot of the rich people were shorting stock. People got a little crazy because it had been a long time since there had been a correction. And so people were shorting stock left and right. People were playing various ways of of making money without massive movements in the actual stock price. And they leveraged themselves into a lot of trouble. So that when the panic hit, they needed to sell, too. Those are the people who jumped out of the windows. Those are the people who'd really shorted themselves, and then the stock collapses. Like, oh, my God, I'm screwed. I need to come up with $50 million immediately, or else I'm going to lose everything. So I'll sell all of my stock, or I'll do whatever. I'll lose my house. I'll sell this stock. But the people who remained calm, the people who were smart before the panic, you got to be smart before the panic, too. We're fine through the panic, and we're better off after the panic. So just keep that in mind. Do what you got to do. Think what you're going to think. Investigate. Don't listen to one person and say, well, this is my guru. I believe this. Maybe you do. But if you come to that conclusion after only hearing that one person based on how confidently they sell you that bill of goods well then if it doesn't if it, i hope it works out for you but if it doesn't work out for you then you've got nobody to blame but yourself 
if you come to that conclusion, like this person is my guru, after listening to a whole bunch of different people, or a few different people at least, and you go, all right, well, this one makes the most sense, makes the most sense for me, or what have you, then you'll be much, much better off at the end of the day. So my response is, I don't know. But I know that most of the people who are talking like they do know also don't know. And it's fed by the media. This is, by the way, fed by the media. I want to play you a clip from this week with George Stephanopoulos. I don't know. Is it still this week with George Stephanopoulos or have they changed the name? Because George Stephanopoulos doesn't do the show very often. <laughs> it's amazing to me that he can be the... Uh, the face of a show that he isn't really on. Martha Raddatz was in again, and she was talking to Senator Mark Warner of Virginia about this. Now, the thing that makes me think that there could be something to this it could get bad scenario is how the left is already trying to find ways to blame Republicans, to blame Donald Trump. But that's just, you know, could be a preemptive circle. It's their knee-jerk reaction. It's their Pavlovian response to anything is find a way to blame Donald Trump. That way, if things go really bad, then we've already got an out for our team. That being said, the way that they're going to try to, they're trying to blame Donald Trump for this is to say that he deregulated small and mid-sized banks. And that regulation is what caused this collapse or facilitated this collapse and caused the federal government not to notice this collapse. There's, you can tell there's no meat on this bone by the way that Martha Raddatz cites exactly nothing. All she does is what the left always does. Oh, there was deregulation under the Trump administration. Okay. And that caused the problem. Well, wait a second. What regulation do you think that was rolled back or minimized caused this? Which one? Where? How? Just saying deregulation doesn't matter. What could be deregulation is saying that the height of the the uh, what do you call it? the the hand brace on the wall in the bathrooms for the the, the Americans with Disabilities Act they regulate where those hand things to in case somebody in a wheelchair disabled has to get up and use the, those facilities they regulate the height of those things they have to be in compliance and with everything if they change that or they said you know what instead of exactly 36 inches you can go for anywhere from 30 to 40 inches that would be a Change in regulation could be billed as a deregulation. Like I said, I don't know the banking industry, but it's abundantly clear that Martha Raddatz doesn't either in this clip because she doesn't try to explain the deregulation, quote unquote. It can't be that dramatic if it got a lot of Democrats supporting it. Mark Warner isn't having it in any event. Listen to this cut. Senator, after the financial crisis in 2008, regulations were put into place to make sure banks could weather large losses. Under President Trump, some of those were rolled back. And in 2018, you were one of only 17 Democrats who voted for the bill that rolled back some banking rules, including for institutions the size of Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank was under closer watch, closer scrutiny before that bill was signed into law by President Trump. Do you regret that vote? Martha, I still think uh, we put in place Dodd-Frank. I was proud to be one of the 
key authors of that bill. It strengthened the banking system. I do think these mid-sized banks uh, needed some regulatory relief. End of the day, Martha, no matter what the capital had been in this bank, if you don't get Banking 101 straight, if you don't m manage your interest rate risks, if you've then got a run at $42 billion in a single day, unprecedented. Um, we'll have time to look back on what the regulators did and didn't do and why the bank management didn't get this right, Banking 101, managing interest rate risks. Uh, what we've got to focus on right now is how do we make sure there's not contagion and at the same time, you know, believe that the SVB can be acquired. Remember, this has got a good book of business. This has got startup companies all over the country. And um, that so is Senator, a you, asset to somebody who's going you to You don't regret that vote. Listen, I think that was called the 2155 bill. I think it put in place a appropriate level of regulation on mid-sized banks. You don't regret that vote. Trump signed it. Trump did this. Trump era. The, okay, well, what? What about it, Martha? Just saying that it happened doesn't mean anything. There are lots of banking regulations that change every year, every month. What about this particular thing? Well, it lessened re uh, regulations on small and mid-sized banks. In what way? In what way? Well, uh, I guarantee you she doesn't know. It doesn't matter. She doesn't have to know. The seed has been planted that if this thing gets really bad, there it is. That's going to be the argument. I guarantee you what Martha Raddatz just asked in that clip will be parroted from the historic Karine Jean-Pierre at some point this week. Trump deregulation. We're trying to recover from Trump deregulation. This is how it works. Everybody's selling something. Always. By the way, everybody's weighing in on this thing. Some people know what they're talking about. Other people don't. And other people have caused disasters in the past. And now they're weighing in on it and what have you. It's, that's why I tell you to, to take take everybody with a grain of salt. And ultimately, you're the one who's going to make your decisions for you. Are we on the verge of another Great Depression? I, I don't know. I can't say no. I can't say yes. But I don't think anybody can say anything with any certainty. But uh, Larry Summers, he was Treasury Secretary. I think he was Treasury under Bill Clinton. And uh, the National Economic Director of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. He is one of the go-to guys when it comes to the economy for the left. And he's, uh, he got a warn. He's got a, a series of tweets, not a super long series of tweets but he said uh, there is much fog surrounding the silicon valley bank situation impossible to assess or prescribe with confidence based on public information and that would be enough that should be enough it's impossible to know and i can't tell you what to, but of course <laughs> in the world that i describe of punditry where it doesn't matter if you don't know just say it with confidence it's all that matters each booking is about getting your next booking. Each appearance as a contributor is about getting an extension of your contract as a contributor. Each one of your shows is about making sure you have another show. It has nothing to do with reality. There will be no accountability. As MSNBC and CNN proved, you can be as wildly wrong as you want. Just don't look back. Don't acknowledge it.
There's no need to say you're sorry. Just ever forward, ever forward. So then Larry Summers says, I hope and trust that the authorities are on the path to doing what is necessary to restore confidence. Acting decisively and rapidly is both the cheapest for taxpayers and the best for the economy. Failure to act strongly enough would be a layman-like heir, meaning like Lehman Brothers. Now, wait a You see what he's saying there? He's not telling you what to do or what the regulators do. It's all just platitudes. It's cable news platitudes. It's NPR platitudes. It must act, act decisively and quickly. Okay, act how? Like do a flash mob dance outside of a Silicon Valley bank? What do you, what do you mean? He tries to give a little bit of information in his next tweet. It's clear that all this SVB segregated assets and uninsured deposits be fully backed by Monday. It's a clear imperative that all segregated assets and uninsured deposits be fully backed by Monday morning. Why? Look, if you're making an uninsured investment in a bank, if you open up an account... There's a reason for it. Now, I have never had that kind of... I don't think most people have ever had that kind of money where they're like, I got so much cash, I got to park it somewhere. All right, I, I'll be willing to take some risks because why? Because I don't. I have so much money, I don't have to worry about it or it, I don't care. So I can. You know, I assume if you're going to give money to a bank in an uninsured account that there is some risk involved, and there obviously the risk is that you will not get your money back. So if the bank fails, and bank failures are not all that uncommon, so this isn't all that uncommon. It's just the reasons and the size of this bank that make it different. Most bank collapses you don't even notice and certainly aren't really newsworthy. They come in on a Friday, they straighten things out on Monday, and the average customer doesn't notice anything. The size of this bank is what makes the difference. But if you're willing to enter into a bank account, a, uh, a agreement with a bank, an investment, whatever, that has risk involved in it, you are therefore assuming that risk, are you not? Why should uninsured accounts get a damn thing? Why? They shouldn't. Larry Summers is also imperative that sufficient support be provided to other banks to ensure full availability of deposited funds across the banking system. This is not the time for moral hazard lectures or lessons administering uh, or or for lessons administering or for alarm about the political consequences about the political consequences of bailouts. That's exactly what he's advocating. Let's just do bailouts. Political moral hazard, the moral hazard comes in when you take risks and you lose and you are taken care of anyway. How differently would you act if you walked into a casino, lost everything you had, and then walked out with somebody cutting you a check for the exact amount? The casino says, here's your money back. I hope you learned a lesson. How differently would you, if that was the sign out in front says, when you lose, we'll pay you back. Well, you'd probably would bet everything you had because why not? There's no downside. If you win, you win. If you lose, you break even. That's the moral hazard. So then you know this and you'll go back to the casino the next day and go, you know what? 
Put it all on red, baby. Let's do this thing. Oh, now it came up black. Oh, well. Let's go get my money back. It would impact how you act constantly. Whereas if you go in there and there's a big sign that says, we no longer reimburse your losses. You're on your own. Gamble accordingly. Guess what you'll do? You'll gamble accordingly. You won't put it all on double zero because that's a one in what is it, 38 chance or whatever it is. It's a long shot. You would maybe put five bucks on it instead of everything. So what Lord Summers is advocating here is letting people walk out of the casino going, all right, get your money back. I hope you learned a lesson. Yeah, they learned a lesson that if the losses are bad enough and the right people suffer them, meaning rich liberals, then the federal government will step in and use our money to make those people whole again. That's what he's advocating. That's what the Wall Street Journal has indicated is going on. That's the problem. That is the very definition of moral hazard. But they couch it. And you notice how Larry Summers says, this is not the time for moral hazard lectures or lessons administering or for alarm about the political consequences. Now is not the time. Well, when is the time? If you just get those lectures when things are good, then when things are bad, you throw out those lectures and those those consequences and say, all right, when things are good and everybody's winning and the rich are getting richer, no, we're not going to bail you out. We're not going to bail you out. All right, don't take too big a risk. Don't go crazy. We're not going to bail you out. And then when they go crazy and take too big a risk and things collapse or go sideways or the government screws up the economy by printing too much money and blah, 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 and the feds do this, that, and the other thing, then you say, all right, all right, all right, we'll bail you out. We'll bail you out. But next time, don't worry about it. No, you have just ceded your justification for ever telling these people no. Forever telling these people no. If you got a teenager who wants, who gets caught drinking beer. You know, what? you can't drink beer. You can't drink beer. All right. You can drink beer at home. But that's it. You know, going out to parties or you're going to get arrested, you go someplace else. You and your friends want to sit in a basement and drink beer. Go ahead. And then things go sideways or whatever. Or you wake up and you become a less than crappy parent or a less crappy parent. You go, all right, no more drinking at home. What is your justification for that? You've already let it slide. You've set the precedent. That's the problem. Or next time, the bailout in 2008, same sort of thing, the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, a massive bailout of the financial system, which had been wildly reckless, at the encouragement, by the way, of the federal government. So there was some complicity in there, and at the forcing of the federal government in uh, forcing banks to make mortgage loans to people who clearly could not afford them, could not afford to pay them back. None of that mattered. It's all evil big banks. Okay, evil big banks. If it's evil big banks, then why are you giving them a blank check to make them whole? If they're responsible for this, why are you bailing them out? Oh, we're doing it for the little guy. Make sure that the average American isn't hurt. Do you know an average American 
who lost their ass in 2008, who was then bailed out by the federal government. No, the banks got bailed out. The people who couldn't afford their mortgages didn't really get bailed out all that much. Not nearly at the rate, and certainly not for the amount of money that the rich people who helped cause the problem did. I'm sorry, the rich liberals who helped cause the problem. Oh, they say, well, he helped out people, and maybe they did help out some people. But at the expense of other people, if you paid your bills responsibly, if you bought as much home as you could afford, or maybe even less, so you could save, you didn't make out like a bandit. You got robbed. You were the Peter that was robbed to pay Paul. You were the one who saw your quality of life go down so that other people who were living high on the hog, higher on the hog than they could have afforded, could continue to live high on that hog. It was an absolute mess. It was a moral hazard. And what did you end up with? Nobody really learning anything. Banks are still making those kinds of loans, those kinds of investments. In the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, etc., etc., etc. If you notice the financial institutions that are in the greatest risk of hiccups, shall we say, are the ones who embrace diversity, equity, inclusion the hardest, the social justice warrior activism banks. Or they're the big ones who don't really care. This is a great time to be one of these gigantic banks with more money than they know what to do with that people are running to throw their money into because they think that they're safe. Why? Because you get the virtue signal with very little consequence. You're getting more business if you're Chase Bank now because you're Chase Bank. So you can say, look at us. We're very, very woke. And you get the... Uh, the leftist investors and the leftist activists going, okay, well, we'll leave them alone for now. It's always for now, but they do. But fear not, Americans, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen is on the case. I want to play you something that it is the saltpeter of inspiration. <laughs> Janet Yellen appeared on Face the Nation on Sunday. Margaret Brennan is the host. She's at, the discussion is less important a lot of times, look, Ronald Reagan was criticized constantly because, oh, he was just a, a wild-eyed optimist. He's a wild-eyed optimist. And he said things that were just designed to make Americans feel good. Part of the time, Americans sometimes Americans do just need to be made to feel good. You think back to the Bush administration when the left was desperately trying to talk the country into a recession, constantly, eight years, talk into a recession. So much so that Barack Obama ran, it's the worst economy in 40 years. Really? Things are actually pretty good. Nope, it's the worst economy in 40 years, because I said so. Uh, George Bush is just painting a rosy scenario. Joe Biden's painting a rosy scenario. He will not get that sort of criticism. But sometimes people do need to be made to feel good, not because it will stir the economy and actual growth, but in the parts of the economy that are intangible and dependent upon people's mood, that part that can be impacted by panic. If people are calmed rather than panicked, they will make better financial decisions, even if there is an economic downturn. But there's very little money, no money really in calm. There's money in the sky is falling and there's money in everything is great and it's only going to get better. That's where the money is. The middle no money. 
With that in mind, listen to Janet Yellen. If she's going to be the one to try and bring about calm, to try and bring about uh, confidence in the economy, see if you have any confidence. Just forget the substance, although listen to it, in the manner in which she speaks and presents herself. The tech sector has already been suffering from layoffs. It's already under pressure. And this is really the hub of American innovation. Uh, How severe will the consequences be for that innovation? I think it depends on how this situation is resolved, but um, well aware that many startup firms have deposits and venture capital uh, firms have deposits at this bank that um, have been affected by its failure. So this is something we're working to try to resolve. Well, doesn't that just instill confidence in you? Doesn't it? We're going to do I'm going to go take a nap, and then eventually I will get back to what's going on. But, uh, you know, we are on it. Are you awake? We are on it. I will not rest until the end of this interview. Oh, I mean, until this is resolved. Does she inspire? Come on, team. What's Would you follow that? Storming the beaches of Normandy? I don't think so. So part of the problem we have is a perception problem. Part of it is we have a reality problem. Which side Janet Yellen happens to fall on, I'll leave to you to decide. I want to talk about uh, this that I just saw. Eric Swalwell was on, apparently over the weekend, Katie Fang. Remember Katie Fang? She used to be on Fox all the time. It's amazing to me how many leftists Fox has launched. Honestly, Katie Fang, if you, she was on Greta Van Susteren all the time. And it's weird because she was seemingly semi-conservative when she was on Fox all the time. But then they got rid of uh, Greta Van Susteren and they got rid of Katie Fang. And Katie Fang got a job over at MSNBC because she's, you know, she's attractive. She's not unattractive. She's good for television. So she's uh, now on MSNBC, and she's, when she was on there as a contributor, she got constantly, what? She got constantly more rabidly left-wing. So it begs the question that never gets asked. Was she lying before about being conservative? Or was she, or is she lying now about being liberal? I don't, I don't know. Maybe you can have a wholesale switch on a dime on everything, but I suspect that it's not really likely. By the way, think about it. Is, you know, they got liberal after liberal after liberal that got their start on Fox, got notoriety on Fox. And you got some conservatives who got some notoriety on Fox who then went to other networks and became liberals. Let's see. Uh, what's her face? Essie Cup, one of them. There's not a Democrat Party cause that she does not embrace now. Why? Because she'd have to work for a living if she did. My God, if she went the other way, if she said, you know what, I'm as conservative as I ever was, she'd be, you know, she wouldn't be fired from CNN. She just wouldn't be renewed at CNN. It'd be over. I mean, they've tried desperately to make her into a thing. Here's a show. Nobody's watching this show. Well, here's another show. Nobody's watching this show. Well, here's another show. Nobody's watching it. And her contract, her pay is likely still based on when she had a show back when they thought that she was somebody people gave a damn about. They were always wrong about it. But uh, she's still out there. She knows that if she says anything too conservative, she won't get 
renewed and then she'll be forced to live based on her abilities. Ew. She'd go hungry. Katie Fang, same kind of way. Now she's a rabid lefty weekend host on MSNBC. I think it's weekend. Might be one of the streaming things. Who the hell knows? But, uh, you know, she's, she's not. that's what's weird about MSNBC. There's no real difference in any of the hosts, in any of the shows, in anything. You watch their weekend lineup, and it's, it's all the same as the weekday lineup, and it's all the same as one after the other after the other. And you sit there and you go, well, who the hell are these people? Where are they coming from? And it's like the weekend is relegated to the Al Sharptons of the world. It's the diversity, equity, and inclusion hours on MSNBC. And you go, why? Well, so they can be smug about everything, basically. So they can be absolute smug about everything. And they can have, like, we're very, very woke. Their primetime lineup is white guy after white guy after white guy after white lady, and then there's Joy Reid. But they're totally woke. And then there's more. They gave the white lady two hours. They don't, why don't they give Joy Reid a half an hour and Nicole Wallace a half an hour? Well, because they don't really mean it. I mean, if they had any standards, Joy Reid wouldn't have a show. She wouldn't be allowed in the building, but they don't have any standards. But anyway, Eric Swalwell was on with Katie Fang. And he's calling for removal of Fox News from the military bases, from military bases, from military cable systems, from denying the military what is one of their most popular channels. Now, look, I have my own problems with Fox. But you give people the, here's a whole bunch of channels, watch what you want. Only a fascist would say, you can't watch this. I don't like the message that they're going at. I disagree with the message. Therefore, you can't watch it. It's the job of a parent. Members of Congress are not the military's parent. Eric Swalwell is a bad person on top of being dumb and on top of being a tool who fell for the honey trap from the Chinese communist Fang Fang. Maybe it just it's around people who are Fang, named Fang, because you got uh, Katie Fang here. But he says that we got to get rid of them in the hopes that it will cause Fox to reform itself, of course. Well, Gene, I, I think about our troops, and I, I've been all over the world and have visited our troops uh, in some of the harshest places and uh, nothing makes them feel more like home uh, than their access you know to american television programming and a a popular channel is fox news and uh, again i I don't want to get in the business of telling troops what they can and cannot watch uh, but if you have a news station that a court is going to rule uh, is uh, in its evening hour uh, you know perpetuating dis and misinformation uh, I don't know if I disagree with both vets who are saying uh, that we need to take a look at, uh, you know, how this is being broadcast to our troops. I, I hope that's an incentive for Fox News to clean up uh, its evening hour, uh, you know, starting with uh, Tucker Carlson and going uh, late into the evening with Laura Ingram. They all spun and told these lies. So I, I don't think we're without complete recourse. Look, I can't defend Fox and what most of what they do. They're just as guilty of everything that's wrong with cable news as the other networks are. They're just doing it from a different perspective. But they have an absolute right to do it. 
They have an absolute right to do it. A court is going, does Eric Swalwell know how the court is going to rule in the Dominion case? Does he have inside information? I'd like to know, because if he does, then this judge needs to be impeached immediately if he's leaking what he's going to do to a backbench idiotic member of Congress who will then go on weekend cable and tell the world about it before he does it. See, that's kind of, they're in the discovery phase of this Dominion case. It's a long way to go, and then there's appeals and appeals and appeals. Who knows which way? If, if, the, if Dominion loses, I promise you they're going to appeal. So if Fox loses, I promise you they will appeal. Should they not both get the same level of access to the courts and the same rights as, say, a, a murderer on death row does? Not according to the left. It should be determined. Well, first of all, the murderer takes precedent over everything because they're the salt of the earth. Got to make sure that people on death row, right up to the moment that they're executed, have executions. They're not really anti-death penalty. They don't want any executions before Election Day. They want it the day after Election Day, after we know that the ballots have been cast, you can go ahead and execute them all you want. But it's a very bizarre thing to see a member of Congress. Maybe we need to deny the troops what they want because we don't like it. If you notice, with Tucker Carlson, and they're all mad about the footage from January 6th. They're all mad about the exposure of uh, the QAnon shaman, the guy Jacob Chesley or whatever his name is, who... Tucker showed he was not a ringleader. He was billed as a ringleader in court documents and court filings. The government said he was a ringleader of violence. He was a monster. He was basically the cause of all of it. And then you look at the surveillance footage, and it wasn't. He, was, he wasn't even leading anybody. The only people he was leading was two Capitol Hill police officers who followed him around to make sure that he was able to get access to the Senate chamber without having to smash a door. They probably thought he might smash a door, although the guy was wildly peaceful and didn't smash anything thanking police officers for leading him into the Senate chamber and away from locked doors. They, the government, our government, portrayed him as a monster while hiding all that footage you saw on Tucker's show. Eric Swalwell doesn't like that. Jimmy Kimmel at the Oscars last night made a joke about, oh, through editing you can make a, a riot look mostly peaceful. Well, it it. Both sides can be true. There were horrible things that happened on January 6th, and there were people who were very peaceful, did not commit any violence at all. The left doesn't want you to know the whole picture. They only want you to know their part of the picture that they like. But it's weird that those very same people would stand in front of people throwing bricks and Molotov cocktails at police officers and say, mostly peaceful, there's some violence, but these are protests. No, they're not protests. When everybody's getting a new TV and a set of Nikes, that's a riot. It's not a protest. But to sit there and say we need to shut down Fox, look, I'm critical of Fox. What I'm curious about is Tucker was given 44,000 hours worth of footage, and he's certainly shown the stuff about the guy in horns walking around. He hasn't shown much more. I don't know how you have 44,000 hours and don't show much more. There should be a whole lot of things to show. If there was 
people being riotous and violent. I want to see that, too. I want to see what happened inside the United States Capitol. Because we've been told, what? That there was violence everywhere. That they, somebody smeared feces in there. People were damaging the building itself, aside from the windows that were broken. But on the inside, there were these horrible things. There sure seems to be some skirmishes. The left certainly has the footage of the skirmishes with police inside. Not very many, mind you and really only on the House side. But there should be a hell of a lot more. I don't want to see, oh, here's people just walking through. I want to see the bad, too. I find it curious that we haven't seen much of anything. You can figure out for yourself why that might be. But I do find it curious that we haven't seen much of anything. I don't know. I doubt highly that Fox is being putting pressure on Tucker to be quiet. That's not really the way that Fox has operated in the past, so I'd be surprised if they operated that way now. But that being said, nothing would surprise me in America. Not in these days. I saw, you know, I I keep seeing this thing. I want to comment on it. There's a guy named Avi Yemeni. He works for Rebel News. He works for Rebel News out in Australia. And he's very good when it goes, he went to like Davos. He's very good at confronting these elitist leftists and, and asking them serious questions that they don't want to answer, which are the, really the only kinds of questions that we should ask basic questions to get the basic information. And then you should be asking questions to make those in power, whoever they are, wildly uncomfortable. Ask the questions they don't want asked. And he does it for Rebel News. He's one of the few people that bothers to do it. But he's got a picture here of a, an Indian costume. And uh, one of the two famous drag... I don't know. This guy's a trans something. or He's a weirdo. He's one of the two guys who, like, the left props up. He's got a tampon endorsement, even though he's got a beard. And uh, he talks all breathlessly like this. I don't know the guy's name. I don't care what the guy's name is. But he pretends to be a woman and he's making a ton of money off of it at the expense of real women. Real women are not making this money because this guy is making the money. And Avi Yemeni says, uh, we live in a world where your kid cannot pretend to be an Indian, but a grown man can pretend to be a woman. It's true. I would say, just to add, a grown man can pretend to be a woman and make a fortune pretending to be a woman whereas you know what do you hear from the leftist the feminist women make less money than men do well it's it you're going to make a lot less money than men do if the high paying endorsement gigs all go to dudes <laughs> you know the high the high paying gigs it's only a matter of time by the way that like you know you you got to have non-traditional casting you have to have non-traditional casting in movies cbs the other day, or uh, Bill, I was watching Bill Maher on Friday. He announced, and maybe this has been known for a while, but CBS, they film the real-time show on CBS lot. He said that CBS has a policy that 50% of the writers in the writer's room for their shows have to be biopic, people of color. What is it? It's black, indigenous, and people of color. That's biopic, I think. I don't know. I might be missing a letter. I don't care. But it is ridiculous. Merit is going the way of the dodo. And you look at the ratings for network television and you look at the quality of network television, you begin to see why 
oh, okay, well, this is, it sucks, but at least it was written by somebody who looks like me, is garbage. You should be able to put together whatever kind of show you want to put together, and you should be able to put together, and you should want to put together whatever the best show possible is. But ABC News, the same thing. A certain percentage of the cast and crew have to be some sort of different skin color. Weird how Asian doesn't really count. And one of the most celebrated shows in the last you know, 20 years or so, I didn't really watch it. I know a lot of my family loved it. But uh, one of the most celebrated shows was Modern Family. If you watched Modern Family, it's about a multiracial, multicultural, multisexual orientation family. It's a fake documentary. It's a, imagine the British version of The Office, which was ripped off by the American version of The Office, which was then ripped off style-wise to be Modern Family, this fake documentary style. That's what it is, just like this Abbott. I've never watched Abbott Elementary. I never would because it's all derivative of the same thing. They're just ripping off Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant with The Office. It's not creative. Somebody says something stupid and somebody else looks at the camera knowingly and mugs. That's not comedy. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but at a certain point it becomes copyright infringement, I think. But these shows, the Modern Family show wasn't diverse enough. Because there were too many white actors on the screen. There were Hispanic actors and they unleashed whatever, it's Sofia Vergara or whatever, on the world, the modern Charo. But it now, according to ABC's own standards, after raking in 10 years of Emmys for best comedy and, oh man, we love this. Now that show wouldn't be made today on ABC because it's not diverse enough. I hate to break it to people, but if you look at television and then you look at real life, how much does television actually reflect real life? They always say we've got to reflect America. America is not all that integrated. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's how it is. You can aspire for something different, but forcing it, merit. How about you find... Uh, a show featuring black characters that's good and put it on television rather than saying, all right, hire this person because of their skin color. How about give people a break who deserve a break rather than giving somebody a job because of their skin color? Imagine that world. Imagine that mentality. You're not allowed to talk about that. It's probably a hate crime. Oh, I'm a horrible racist for saying that sort of thing. No, I'm not really. I'm uh, I'm somebody who's realistic. I sure as hell wouldn't take a job because, look, we need a white guy around here, all right? You're the token. I mean, I guess if it paid enough, I'd take... If it paid enough and it was no-show, so let me revise that. I would take a job <laughs> if it paid enough and was no-show. But I sure as hell wouldn't be proud of it. Because I'd, I'd, I'd have dreams. I'd have hopes. I've had aspirations. And uh, I think every human being, I know every human being does. And you strip them of their humanity when you say, we need a diversity hire. No, because then you got it because you're skin color, not because of your ability to do it. Screwed up. And these are the people who are lecturing us about racism. Since we're talking about racism and everything, I want to switch to the Oscars. Did you watch the Oscars? I watched the Oscars. There was a time when I, I really, it was a social event. It was on my social calendar. 
Not that I had much of a social calendar back then. But when I was a kid and when I was in college, I loved movies. I still love movies. There are just fewer movies to love. Uh, I love the concept. The execution has changed to the point that it's it's not enjoyable to watch most of them. But uh, the Oscars was great because you'd watch movie stars winning awards for being movie stars, for performances and movies that you you saw a lot of the time. Then it became movies were nominated because of the subject matter they were about, not necessarily the performances that they uh, were, the movie, whatever. The movie itself didn't matter as much as the subject matter. Now, I'm going to say this blindly, and I'll tell you that I, I come from a place of ignorance on this one because I never saw the movie, but Moonlight. Moonlight was a very inexpensive movie. Remember Moonlight? It won Best Picture a few years ago. A wildly inexpensive movie to make, but I believe it was definitely about uh, gay black men. It might have been about a trans black man, too, or something like that. I don't know. I, I never really cared enough to look into it. It was just a small, independent movie. It was made for $4 million, Worldwide, it made $65 million. It's a good return on the investment. But it's a small movie. And I don't care about the subject matter. It doesn't. I wouldn't go see a movie. I didn't go see the big short about the economic problems of 2008. Why? Because I knew that the people who made it were lefties and it was going to be a leftist piece of propaganda. Plus, who cares? I didn't go see the uh, the one about the reporters who exposed all the perverts in the Catholic Church. I'm glad that they did, but watching a movie about procedure, journalistic procedure seems really boring. Most of the winners of Best Picture and most of the nominees of Best Picture, you just most people haven't seen. They're they're boring as all get out. So Hollywood as like, ooh, Hollywood. Yeah, there are still people who aspire to, man, one day I'd love to be a rich, famous actor or make movies or whatever. But it's not based on really what's going on now. It's based on what they remember it being back when they were kids. The next generation, they don't want to make, they'll make message movies. They don't make comedies anymore. They don't make anything funny. They don't, if it's not about how think of, I was thinking about this yesterday during the Oscars. Think about this. How many movies have you seen where the drug dealers, the gangbangers are the bad guys? And then how many of them really get rewarded with awards? They get awarded awards. How many? I can't remember the last. I mean, I'm sure there probably are a bunch. But they don't get the hype. But if you make a movie about, oh, how a cop just goes around and beats up brown people. Clear out. You need to buy. You need to go to Ikea and buy some shelves, shelving units, lots of them, because you will be given award after award after award. Now, are there bad cops? Of course, there are bad cops. But which do you think is worse for a neighborhood or a city? One bad cop or a drug dealing gang hmm? i'm sure there are corrupt border patrol agents for example but which do you think is causing more havoc to be uh, done down on the southern border in the states and communities along the southern border that bad border agent 
or the drug cartels smuggling human beings and fentanyl into the country? Which one do you think it is? I mean, I guess your answer depends heavily on which side of the political spectrum you fall on. But I guarantee you, if you do a movie about how the Mexican cartels are working with L.A. street gangs to bring in fentanyl because there's a ton of money in it, and there's a cop who really works hard and ends up busting up a giant ring. That could be a very interesting procedural drama. It won't get, it not only wouldn't get awards, it wouldn't get made. But if you wanted to make a movie about how a Border Patrol agent, boy, howdy, that guy was in on the smuggling and he abused the sweet, sweet, nourishing illegal aliens. He'd only let them into the country if they shoved a whole bunch of fentanyl into their bodies. That'd be Oscar Gold. That Sean Penn would play it. Hell, Sean Penn would produce it. That's the world we're living in. So, like, when you sit there and you watch these award shows, I expected fully to be lectured in politics. I wasn't. Jimmy Kimmel... Boy, one thing you just realize watching Jimmy Kimmel work is he's profoundly unfunny. He is prof- He used to be kind of funny back in the Man Show days. I haven't watched. I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of Jimmy Kimmel live, just because I don't watch. I got better things to do than watch these late night supposed comedy shows. I've seen clips of it, and he's just an angry leftist, which also inspired me not to want to watch him. But he's just not funny. That's the problem. And the worst part about it is you see him trying. He's actually trying to be funny, and he's not funny. I could see if he had just a a poor attitude and like, la-di-da, I don't care. But he's not funny. He did a bit where he's walking through the audience that was seemingly on the fly that required him to ad-lib a little bit, and he could not do it. He just ended up sort of harassing Malala Yousafzai, the former teenager, now she's 25 and married, the former teenager who was shot in the head by the Taliban because she was going to school. Youngest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. She's there for a movie. I think it was a movie about her. I don't know. But she's sitting in the audience, and he's making trying to make fun with her. She looks wildly uncomfortable, wildly unhappy to, to sort of be in the spotlight in this way and, you know, on live television. And he just can't read the room and go, okay, I'm going to go away. Nothing he did was funny. It was sad. Tried to make fun of Tucker Carlson. That joke fell flat. Most of the jokes fell flat. They weren't overtly political. They were just bad. But the as the Oscars started rolling out, there was one, the, the two directors, I can't remember what they were, who won for everything everywhere all at once. Again, that tells you how little the Oscars had an impact. They, uh, one of them thanked his parents for not uh, doing, not stopping him from dressing up in drag or something like that. Because it's harmless or whatever. Yeah, no, it's fine. You're right. Dressing, adults, even kids dressing in drag can be harmless. It's the adults dressing in drag who are grinding in front of kids, encouraging other kids to dress in drag that it becomes a little bit messed up. That's kind of where it becomes messed up. But they don't announce that. They don't manage that. Uh, they don't care about that. But anyway, afterwards, we did get some political stuff. And one of the th- political things was from Ruth E. Carter. She won an Oscar for costume design for uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I liked the movie. It was a fine movie. It was one of the few movies. 
Oh, no, I didn't actually go. No, I did go see this one at the theaters. That's right. I went and saw it opening night. Um, it's a fine movie. It's not as good as the first one because they're dealing with the sad loss of, of Chadwick Boseman and having to deal with the main character being dead. And so they did a fine bit of, of service with that and did him proud, but it wasn't as good as it could have been or should have been. That being said, Ruth Carter won an Oscar. She is a black woman. She also won an Oscar for the first Black Panther movie. Therefore, this is her second Oscar. It actually makes her the first black woman to win two Oscars. You have to add woman in there because Denzel Washington won two Oscars. I think other people have won two Oscars, too. But they got the first black woman to have won two Oscars. I, I don't care about that sort of crap. and I think it cheapens the accomplishment. I've never won an Oscar. I'll never win an Oscar. You've never won an Oscar and will never win an Oscar. Why do you have to add the caveat? She's the first one of this that did it. Like, oh, so she did it. Like, isn't that enough worth celebrating? No, it's not. And not even according to Ruth Carter. It was backstage. She had to talk about how bad she's got it and how she hopes to inspire other people as long as they share her skin color. I, I, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I started, you know, a single parent uh, household. I wanted to be a costume designer. I studied. I, I, I scraped. You know, I dealt with adversity in the industry that sometimes didn't look like me. And I endured. So I, I feel that this win opens the door for other young costume designers that, you know, may not think that this industry is for them. And hopefully they'll see me and they'll see my story and they'll think that they can win an Oscar, too. You've won two Oscars. You're not a victim. OK, you've won two Oscars in a, a short period of time. You are not a victim. By the way, the costumes in the second one were pretty damn close to the costumes in the first one. Wasn't like you started from scratch. You know, you know what we did before? We're going to do something completely different this time. No, it's kind of more of the same. Uh, they're fine costumes, but you didn't cure cancer. You didn't solve world hunger. Oh, people who I did well in an industry that doesn't look like me. Well, let me tell you something. Unless you are a gay man, most of the industry doesn't look like you. It doesn't matter what color you are. Let's just be honest and face facts about who goes into fashion design and costume design. I don't know why it is. It just is. I don't know. I can explain why the sun rises in the east or how clouds come. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. It just is. The reasons for it don't matter. People make choices. She went into it. You're not a victim. You're not the victim. But she is being celebrated for diversity. She, she's won two Oscars, okay? I guarantee you, I don't know who the rest of the nominees were, but I guarantee you that a lot of the other nominees had not won any Oscars. And some of those nominees were not minorities. Who's the victim? Nobody. But where's the mileage in that? There isn't any. So you get crap like this backstage. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about the Oscars and how many of the movies I've seen have I seen, have I not seen. And so I went and I looked it up. And I'm looking at these things in the last, and this is a list from 2021, but I did not see the whatever the hell it was that won Best Picture last year either. And I haven't. In the last 
22 years, I've only seen six, I think. Six of the best pictures. Gladiator, 2001. Um, the Departed in 2007. No Country for Old Men, 2008. The King's Speech, 2011. 2013 was Argo. And 2015 was Birdman. The rest of them, I didn't see Coda, Parasite, Green Book, The Shape of Water, Moonlight, Spotlight. I've never watched that whole thing. 12 Years a Slave, The Artist, The Hurt. Never saw The Hurt Locker, Slumdog Millionaire, Crash, Million Dollar Baby, any of the Lord of the Rings movies or Chicago. But in the previous 20 years, looking at this list, I'm seeing one, two, three, four movies I have, five movies I haven't seen in the previous 20 years. The rest of them I all saw. Over time, you know, if I went in today and I watched uh, Chicago for some weird reason, that would, I'd take that off the list. It would be a, a movie I saw. It doesn't have to be in the calendar year that I saw that it was nominated. It just it, it demonstrates how insignificant Hollywood has become. Honestly, it's it used to be, man, this matters. Man, this is awesome. Man, this is great. These are really good. No, it doesn't. I guess I guess Coda was last year. Everything all at once was this year. So, yeah, I just haven't seen them. And it isn't like I'm looking at this list going, you know, I've always wanted to see Slumdog Millionaire. I just didn't have a chance. Or, boy, I really want to see Million Dollar Baby. I just haven't had the chance. I've had plenty of chances. I've seen plenty of movies in that time period in the last 22 years. But it's a disconnect between the people who watch movies and the people who make movies. The people who make movies, more often than not, hold the people who watch movies in contempt. Really, it's not. I am not one of those people. Who are like, I don't want to help these people because they are, uh, they're bad. They're liberals. Screw them to hell. With them. I'm not that guy. I don't care about that. I am one of those people who are like, you know what? I want to be entertained. The last movie. What the hell was the last movie I saw in theaters? Can't remember. It might have been Black Panther. Might have been. Kind of wanted to go see uh, Ant Man. The new Ant-Man, but I haven't done it yet. And now it's probably not even in theaters anymore. But it's just, there's nothing that inspires me to go. It's got to be like, this is of interest to me. Not because I need to be preached to. I don't need to be preached to. In fact, I don't want to be preached to. But because I want to be entertained. I want to be distracted from people being preached to. And frankly, from me doing the preaching. That I want an hour and a half, two hour distraction it's not anymore and politics is in everything i don't know if you you watched any i watched some of, i was cooking dinner and i put on the uh, red carpet arrivals and it was just on in the background because it was on abc and the oscars were on abc and we we're having a late dinner and it's like well i just want to make sure that i'm watching it at the start when it's on if i wasn't paying attention to the clock and i was watching hgtv or something i would probably miss the beginning and i wanted to see if kimmel was going to be a uh, typical left-wing rear end rear end portal 
And so I wanted to have it on at the start. And the, the opening 15 minutes, it was the most boring opening 15 minutes I've ever seen in, in an Oscars. Jimmy Kimmel is simply not entertaining anymore. I, I don't get it. But uh, it's an ABC property, and it was ABC that paid like a billion dollars for the Oscars, so they're going to cross-promote their bloated, overpaid host. Why wouldn't they? It's not merit. Nothing in Hollywood is merit-based anymore. So I was watching the red carpet or listening to the red carpet out of the corner of my ear when I heard Hugh Grant's voice. And I heard Hugh Grant being interviewed by somebody called Ashley Graham. If you don't know who Ashley Graham is, congratulations to you. Uh, you're lucky. She is, as they say, a uh, a full-sized model, which is to say she is overweight. But she is one of those, she's into body positivity. Because it's easier to be into body positivity than to be in the gym. And so that is the path that she's taken. She is a hero to the left. It's really weird. There was this video. I retweeted it over the weekend. It's something to behold. It is this one guy talking to two women on a video chat, and they show a picture of an obese guy with no shirt, and I said, what do you rate him on a scale of 1 to 10? And it's a negative 1 million. He's just gross, gross, gross. And then they show a picture of, like, Lizzo or somebody like that who's a singer who is really gigantic, really like. Two of the guy that they just showed the picture of. She's a huge, huge woman. They said, oh, she's beautiful. She's a 10. And then they showed a picture, showed him a picture of a guy who was fit, you know, six-packed abs. And they're like, oh, that's not for me. He's a five. He's a whatever. And they show another obese woman. Like, oh, she's beautiful. She's a nine or a 10. And then they showed another fit guy, and they said, uh, that's, that guy's maybe a six. It's not good. And so the guy said, why do you favor fat women and these girls got so offended you can't say fat no though they're just body positive and blah 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 we you can't call somebody fat fat is uh, in the eye of the beholder it's all beauty blah 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 and so the guy says well then why did you call the fat guy a pig and rate him a negative ten thousand like he was the one you rated lowest of everybody was the fat guy but somehow the fat women are beautiful and gorgeous and uh, heroes and everything. And he asked them this. And these girls who I think they were Hispanic, if I had to guess, said that they're not going to take this kind of crap so-and-so from some fat white guy. At which point the quote-unquote fat white guy stands up, pulls up his shirt, and he's got a six-pack. He's not fat at all. And he says, where is the fat? What are you talking about? Address the question at hand. And they immediately disconnect. They immediately disconnect the call because they were caught. They have no sense of themselves, no sense of self, no sense of decency, really. It's really bizarre to watch. These these kids are Pavlovian in their response to these things. Pavlov's principle is basically the the experiment was you treat a dog, you uh, can teach a dog that when a bell rings, it'll get a treat. But every time you ring a bell, you give the dog a treat. You get, then soon you start ringing the bell and the dog goes right to where the treats are dispensed because he knows that the bell means that the treat is coming. It's an involuntary thing. It becomes involuntary, really. You can... That same principle can be done to children. This is why the education fight is so damned important. You can indoctrinate these kids. 
pretty easily because they're kids. And they'll say, no, 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 you're beautiful at any size. Okay, you can be beautiful at any size, but are you healthy at any size? At a certain point where you're tipping the scales at 500, 600 pounds, are you not also running risk of, I don't know, diabetes, of heart disease, of all these other things? They go, people can be healthy. Like, yeah, okay, if you're 24 years old and you're 500 pounds and five foot eight, I don't know what Lizzo is, but I'm just guessing. Somewhere in there. You're 25 years old. You're probably, and you're able to dance, and she can dance. She can move around, and she doesn't collapse in a winded pile of stuff. Sure, fine. You can do that. You're 25 years old or younger. But at a certain point, after a whole bunch of that happening, and a whole bunch of that going on, and more problems being added, you can only beat time and reality for so long for time is undefeated reality is undefeated as delusional as you want to make yourself be that you could become diabetic there is a different you don't want to be a waif but you definitely do not want to be morbidly obese you can be beautiful at any size but you cannot be healthy forever at any size think of it this way how many people over 90 who are morbidly obese do you see morbidly obese how many there are enough shows all over discovery and everything that you know oh my my 600 pound life or 2000 pound twins or whatever you watch it and there's an endless stream of them do any of them film in a nursing home do any of them film in a retirement community i don't care how you live your life and I'm certainly no one to preach, but, you know, for the love of God, you got to be realistic at a certain point, don't you? And these people are not, you're not allowed to be realistic anymore because it's, you're bullying somebody. Yeah. Hey, please don't die prematurely. Oh, stop bullying me. All right. Go ahead and die prematurely. You're bullying me. You can't win with these people. You don't try to win with them. You try to win with everybody else, the same people. Brings us back to Ashley Graham. And Hugh Grant, Ashley Graham, the plus-size model. She has no business being on the red carpet. She's not an entertainment reporter as far as I know. Certainly not an entertainment. She might have been a token cameo in a couple of movies. I looked her up. She's a, a white girl who married, is in an interracial marriage, who, much like Colin Kaepernick, attacked her parents. She brought her black fiancé home, her black boyfriend at the time home, and said, I'm just disgusted by how my family treated him not cited at all was how her family treated him but uh she just she's one of these leftists who wants to get into a woke off with everybody else to show how enlightened she is well she came the problem is she's stupid the problem is she's very stupid and she she is somebody who gets jobs because of her liberal politics and she gets jobs because of her claim to fame being overweight she's not probably gotten a job based on merit in her entire life so she's out there interviewing celebrities on the red carpet and incredibly vapid wildly vapid about everything and up comes hugh grant 
Hugh Grant was a presenter last night. He reunited with uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral co-star Andy McDowell. Still looks great. He made a joke at his own expense about that. It was pretty one of the funnier moments of the evening. And um, he's there. He had a cameo. A mo- it's a really quick cameo in the movie Glass Onion, which is not a good movie. But uh, he's there, and she's asking him all these. I want you to listen to this exchange because Hugh Grant is catching hell for this exchange. He was so rude to the beautiful plus-sized model Ashley Graham. When in reality, Ashley Graham couldn't be bothered to know what the hell she was talking about, and was so dumb that she would just regurgitate anything that somebody whispered in her ear. So you're list- a dumb person listening to equally dumb people or even dumber people equals dumbness. And Hugh Grant just doesn't have time for this sort of crap. I think Hugh Grant comes off as a, as a hero in this clip. Hugh Grant, you are a veteran of the Oscars, and you've been here a few times. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about coming to the Oscars? Um... <laughs> it's fascinating. It's uh, it's uh, uh, the whole of humanity is here. It's uh, it's Vanity Fair. Oh, it's all about Vanity yeah. Fair. Yes, that's where we let loose and have a little bit of fun. Um, what are you most excited to see tonight? To see? Yeah. Well, I know that you probably watched a few of the movies. Are you excited to see anybody win? Do you have your hopes up for anyone? Um, not not no no one in particular. Okay. Well. What are you wearing tonight, then? Uh, just my suit. Your suit? Who yeah. made your suit? You didn't make it. Um, I can't remember. My tailor. That's okay. Yeah. Ta- shout out to the tailor. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what does it feel like to be in Glass Onion? It was such an amazing film. I really loved it. I love a thriller. How fun is it to shoot something like that? Well, I'm barely in it. I'm in it for about three seconds. Yeah, but yeah. still, you showed up and you had fun, right? Uh, almost. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. It was nice to talk to you. Yeah. All right. Back to you guys. <laughs> she clearly had, I don't know, did she not see the movie? She had. She didn't come up with that question herself. I had seen the movie and I'd forgotten that Hugh Grant was in it. We watched it streaming. It's, it's a boring movie. It's a bad movie. There's no real plot to it at all. It's it's poorly constructed. It's a shame. But to sit there and you, you ask, well, what you were in there, how does it feel? That had to have been a lot of fun. Well, you know, I was there for about an hour and a half. Uh, that was it. It was a really quick thing, and it didn't matter. You know, you should probably talk to somebody who was on the set all the time. He's being blasted for that interview. Hugh Grant is. He was problematic. He was rude to Ashley Graham. He was probably rude to her because she's a plus-sized, rotund Zoftik model headlines. Hugh Grant blows off Ashley Graham during Oscar red carpet interview. Hugh Grant's awkward TMZ CNN. Hugh Grant's awkward Oscar red carpet interview with Ashley Graham divides viewers. Fox News. Hugh Grant criticized for rude red carpet interview, etc., etc. On and on. Did you hear rudeness in there? No, you didn't. You heard somebody being politically incorrect. That's what you heard. You heard a white man, a straight white man, as Divine Brown, no matter what he's into as a kink, remember Divine Brown? Doesn't matter what he's into personally, he is still a straight white man at heart. And you don't get much more liberal than Hugh Grant, by the way. But he's still the enemy. 
because he was not deferential enough to somebody who was clearly clueless, stupid, ignorant of what was going on around them and didn't care. Somebody who had no business being there in that job. He was considered rude to her. How pathetic. Not surprising, but pathetic. Now we got to hear Jane Fonda or Jane Hodgkinson, I guess I should say. She was on The View on Friday and it was, well, it was something to behold. Imagine if a conservative said anything like that. Hey, you know, you're a, a pro-life activist. You, uh, There's still people out there performing abortions and all these groups. What do you do? Well, we should probably kill them. What? No, we should probably kill. You're just joking, right? No, I'm not. That would be the end of whoever that conservative's life. They'd be over. Their career would be over. They'd be, probably be uh, a Justice Department official tapping their phone by the time the commercial break started. That's just how it works in this world. But if you're a liberal icon, you can say, hey, what do we do? How do we uh, deal with this abortion? Well, we should murder murder our opponents and everybody kind of go ha ha she's joking she's joking while you're sitting there shaking your head really quickly probably recognizing that you just stepped in it but going i'm not, I'm not really joking but i mean i guess jane vonda lives a consequence free life so she can get away with this and she was in the uh, security blanket known as the view for leftist morons we have experienced many decades now of having agency over our body, of being able to determine when and how many children to have. We know what that feels like. We know what that's done for our lives. We're not going back. I don't care what the laws are. We're not going back. Yeah. I think the women will rise up. That's the activist. That's Jane speaking. Yeah. And, and, and she probably will get a Nobel Prize. But it's very, the truth. Very, very soon. It, it is the truth. But We're I, not going to do it. Besides, besides marching and, and protesting, what else do you suggest? Well, well, it doesn't happen murder. overnight. It's not a miraculous... <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> murder. She's kidding. Wait a second. She's just now, kidding. Don't say that. That's oh, not... you don't know. They'll pick up on that and yeah, just run with it. Yeah, that's the worst. She's just, just kidding. It's... Well, let me talk to you about... <laughs> Let's move on and talk about Jane's activism. Let's move on and talk about Jane's activism. She just said murder her political opponents because she wants to have an abortion. But, uh, yeah, let's just ignore that and move. No, they'll pick up on that and they'll blow it out. Of oh, you know, you murder. So anybody says, you know what, these leftists are, uh, we should shoot for the moon when it comes to arguing with these leftists. Oh, shoot. He said, shoot. They used violent rhetoric. Oh, there was a crosshairs on uh, Gabby Gifford's district on Sarah Palin's obscure website nobody went to. It's all her fault that Jared Lee Loeffner tried to kill her. That's a monster. How dare these people? That's acceptable. That's understandable. That's weaponized. But, hey, we should murder our opponents. Uh, she's joking. And then you heard the laugh there. The laugh there was Jane Fonda shaking her head going, no, I'm not joking. If you want to murder some Republicans, go ahead. Jane Fonda would likely help you escape the country. She'd definitely, definitely give you give money to your defense. You sit there and you go, hey, uh, we've got to really worry about what they say on Fox News. 
people say mean things on Fox News about Democrats. That's, yeah, Fox News, those things they said on Fox News, they caused people to go and kill people in these mass shootings. Then you find out, oh, wait, no, it's a Democrat that did it. It doesn't matter. Maybe the real problem is Democrats inspiring other Democrats to, well, act like Democrats wish all Democrats would act. By that, I mean be violent goons killing their political opponents. Jane Fonda's just her, Jane Fonda's concert. This happened uh, last week on Friday. It's already a non-story. It doesn't matter. Jane Fonda not only got away with it, she'll do it again. Because why not? What's the consequence for doing it again? Another guest shot on the View. I mean, that's a special kind of punishment in my mind, but not the leftists. That is all the time we have for today, ladies and gentlemen. I do appreciate the hell out of the use of your ears. Don't forget to tell a friend. Remind them of the program. Get them hooked on the program. Be back here. Same bat time, same bat channel to do it all over again. Thank you.